After 30 years, we've come to the end of phase one. We're beginning to understand the nature of the problem. We don't know what phase two looks like yet. And I think that's a challenge for both practitioners and the research community is working out, you know, what phase two looks like, whether that's the next 20 or 30 years. How can we make progress building on phase one? Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Dan Half. I'm Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex in the UK. And in today's episode, I am going to talk to some of my esteemed colleagues about the previous episode, episode 100. So if you've not listened to that yet, uh, it might be worth tuning in and having a good listen there before listening to what we've got to say. Why do I say that? Well, episode 100 looked at where the study and analysis of corruption is now. And we did that by asking a whole range of uh, scholars what they felt the position currently was. Now, we're going to reflect a little bit on that um, because we thought the episode was really interesting and there's plenty that can be said about it. I'm going to do that with Professor uh, Liz David Barrett, Professor uh, Robert Barrington and Dr Sam Power, all from the University of Sussex. Liz, going to kick off with you. Can you just say a little bit about your background so folks know who you are? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Liz David Barrett. I'm the director of the Centre for the Study of Corruption at Sussex. Thanks, Liz. And Robert, how about you? Hi, I'm Robert Barrington. I'm the Professor of Anti-Corruption Practice at the Centre for the Study of Corruption in the University of Sussex. And I'm currently in my office, the only one of us who's located on campus today. We are dotted around different parts of the planet. We're going into too much detail there. But yeah, never let it be said that corruption and those who analyse it don't get about. And finally, um, from Cornwall, which is quite a long way from Sussex, but where he's from, Dr Sam Power, how are you? Hi there, Dan. Yeah, Dr Sam Power, um, Senior Lecturer in Politics in the Centre for the Study of Corruption. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that came up about the perhaps globalised nature of corruption in the last episode and there's the globalized nature of this podcast recording happening here Cornwall, Sussex and China at the very least and I think Oxford as well is that right Liz? That's right yep. Yep good so I should say yeah I'm, I'm currently in, in, in southern China so that, that adds yet another dimension to the global nature of what we're doing. Now um, in episode 100 we, we asked um, around a dozen scholars to talk to us about where they felt corruption analysis was going, um, what its achievements were, uh, and some of the some of the key challenges ahead. Now, there's an awful lot of material in there. Liz, what what were your key take homes, or what stood out for you in what um, what you heard there? Yeah, so I really enjoyed listening to the podcast. I actually just listened to it again driving back from Brighton to Oxford, and um, and it's a fantastic episode. So thanks to everybody who uh, took part in it. I think there were lots of key themes that came out. I mean. Perhaps just picking up on, on one that Michael Johnston brings up in his very first, in the first intervention. And he talks about how we think much more about corruption being institutional and we think about the ways in which legal practices are often corrupt. And so that's something that was brought up by quite a few people. Um, Susan Rose Ackerman um, also brings that up, for example. And it also relates, I think, a little bit to the recognition that several other people mentioned too that corruption is not just a problem in the global south it's very much something that is seen in mature democracies too so i think we've got this kind of we've moved away from thinking that corruption is just a kind of technocratic 
issue less about just petty corruption. We're thinking about how it's really deeply embedded in in politics often, um, and also in um, democracies. And um, and so for me, that was quite interesting. Quite a number of people were sort of reflecting on on that shift, and that it's something that is then really also pretty complex difficult and the need to think about the politics of it and not just the, see it as something that can be solved with with technical solutions yeah that, that, that was one of the things i picked up the technical solutions are very much passe now uh, there may be contributions that technical solutions can make but they are far away from being all of the story robert what, what was your, your your initial take on what you heard well, even before my initial take on what I'd heard, actually, I mentioned to um, my students on our MA course on corruption and governance that we have this episode, which has um, uh, Matthew Stevenson, Susan Rose Ackerman, Paul Hayward, Alina Munjo Pipidi, Michael Johnson, and many others. And uh, they thought I was um, uh, having them on at first because they couldn't believe that uh, so many of the all-time greats of our field of study are gathered in in one place at the same time. So um, that was, you know, a first reflection is uh, it's fantastic to have this range of contributors. And to those famous names, of course, we've added other famous names from other parts of the world, people like Delia Ferreira-Rubio, the, uh, the chair of Transparency International. So there's a great spread of opinion there. And I guess my key takeaways from them were, first of all, the complexity of the problem, as Liz was just saying, you know, everybody was highlighting that if ever you had thought that corruption might be uh, simple, I don't think anybody's thought that, but had thought we might really have begun to understand it. It's actually far, far more, far more complex and sophisticated uh, than we could possibly have imagined. And that's possibly what the last 30 years has taught us that, um, you know, we understand a great deal more about it than we did 30 years ago from both um, the um, perspective of researchers and practitioners. And in a sense, the more we understand, the more we understand the nature of the challenge that faces us in trying to tackle it. And that uh, uh, brings my second point in, which is it's slightly hard to be optimistic when you listen to all those contributions, because many people were saying, despite the sort of hard work of the last 30 years, the corruption itself, you know, has morphed, it's changed, it's certainly not improving around the world, despite everybody's efforts. Um, so there's a sense that, um, you know, we may understand the problem better. We've got a sense of some of the things that don't work. So Lena Hoffman, for example, was really good on how much effort can be put into anti-corruption enforcement. But actually, uh, first of all, it doesn't always get results. And secondly, it takes a huge amount of effort over a very long time, even if you do get a result. And so maybe that's not the, um, you know, the best way or possibly only appropriate in really emblematic cases. So I guess, you know, my, my my two really key takeaways were um, the sense that the complex problem is just beginning to unfold before us. But, you know, we do understand some more of that complexity now. And secondly, it is quite hard to be optimistic about the fight against corruption. But notwithstanding that, here's my final takeaway. There was a real sense of determination, I think, that, um, you know, everybody who spoke thought, well, it's not worthwhile just giving up and going home. We've got to carry on this. We've got to understand it. We've got to do something about it. Because I think everybody who spoke has this fundamental understanding that it is really damaging. So uh, it's worthwhile carrying on, understanding it better, finding out what does work and, and doing better on it. And underlying that is a sense of the importance of research, I think, that um, you know that many of the people we spoke to have made huge research contributions over the last 30 years on this. And 
there is a sense that um, if we are going to make progress, we've got to got to do good research in a very nuanced way to understand exactly what's going on so we can start to craft better responses. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of reflect on the, you know, pessimistic versus optimistic. And there are definitely a lot of people saying you know, we need we need to rethink corruption anti-corruption practice has has not delivered and, and this kind of thing. But there's also a sense, I think, that some actors have, there's disappointment in some actors, but there is, people are impressed by others. So, for example, Lauda Sharif talks about being disappointed that actually international organisations have done less than he expected and, and that law enforcement has been less successful than he expected. But then you've also got quite a lot of people talking about a surprising energy in the private sector. So Joseph Pojgai Alvarez talks about this and how companies are often actually really taking on the anti-corruption compliance um, mantle. Uh, Florencia Grezovic talks about how there's so much experimentation and exciting work going on in the global south, um, which we're often, you know, not seeing and which is taking often, you know, much more innovative, different approaches. Um, and we need to make sure that we we pick up on a lot of that too. So yeah, I think there was quite a bit of um, you know, positive surprises as well. Sam, we should come to you to, to ask for your key takeaways. Before I ask for your key takeaways, any takeaways on what we've just heard? Well, that was my, my, luckily enough, my key takeaways almost entirely relate to the the discussion that we're having now. So I can sort of neatly fold them in together, which is the, I think the two, the two things to think about with, with all of the, or, or many of the contributions was that there was this, I suppose, slight pessimism, if you will, that corruption to some extent morphs and it, to some extent is ever-changing and moves into areas that we perhaps find harder to understand and to an extent find harder to regulate, especially with regards to perhaps new technologies. But actually, the thing that the thing that came out, particularly, particularly perhaps with some of the more esteemed academic um, contributions, was how much they reflected on the way in which their assumptions and understandings of corruption had moved from when they started thinking about corruption to where we are now. And actually, I think that's where the reason for optimism comes from, because what we had is this notion that corruption had morphed and there were new challenges. That's actually a sort of considerable reflection on the fact that we're actually not where we were either say 30 years ago and let's let's remember 30 years ago was actually when people really started thinking about corruption really that's you know the the anniversary of transparency international being uh, being set up right so what 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 we got was that people were saying well about 30 years ago i thought of corruption as this i thought it as 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 uh, in very narrow terms in terms of the kinds of actors that we would consider to be corrupt i thought about why it happened in very narrow terms in terms of the way in which we theorize corruption and there's fairly simple cost benefit analyses going on but actually where we're at now is that corruption is morphing but we have this vibrant debate and actually consideration of how we understand corruption how we understand how we should measure corruption how we understand how we should think about how to combat it so that's where i think the optimism comes from that it's a genuine challenge but also there's a genuine vibrancy in how we meet that challenge. And that's the only way in which you can actually mm -hmm. understand how to combat it in the first place. So that, that was where I saw the sort of reasons to be cheerful, if you will, in the podcast. And there were genuinely uh, many reasons to be cheerful. 
yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And on a sort of more flippant note, but a very serious one. I mean, I, I grew up in 1980s Britain. I remember seeing bombs being planted at railway stations by terrorists from Northern Ireland. I remember thinking, there's no way this problem's ever going to be solved. And, and the situation has changed quite considerably. Change happens, often in intractable situations. You know, I remember seeing Nelson Mandela walk free from prison in the 1990s. Who'd have thought that was going to happen, eh? You know, change does happen. I'm not saying we'll have a Nelson Mandela moment, but I do think sometimes these intractable problems are often things evolve and we evolve with them as analysts. And so I think uh, I, I think the reasons to be optimistic don't mean that we expect corruption to be solved tomorrow. And clearly nobody was in that boat. Liz, I was going to ask you a question about theory. Well, actually, I'll come to, come to that in a minute. Robert, did you want to dive in there? Yeah. Um, Dan, before you get to Liz, I wanted to ask what were your key takeaways? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of them have been covered, actually, Robert. I mean, I, I think the point that we have changed as individuals has struck me struck me sort of quite clearly that a number of people said over time they have realized that and i think that's quite quite a useful thing to remember that uh, ultimately we all need to be reflective and we all, we all need to to realize that we're on we're on we're on journeys too the other thing that really caught my eye was was about theory and sort of going to ask liz a question and then i was going to sort of you know d- dive into that particular issue there because a couple of the contributors really were quite escaping the right word about the contribution that, that theory has made. A lot of it, it seems to have failed. And I, I, I wasn't sure about that. I mean, if the idea that is that theory explains everything, then, well, yeah, it probably has failed. But theory was never meant to do that. It's a stepping stone to try and work out what is definitely right, what is definitely wrong, and where we are on the way to finding more about the former than, than the latter. So I wonder if a lot of our theorising will inevitably fail. We just have to, to, to show a little bit more um, savviness in working out what are the most interesting leads that will help us take real-world policy solutions forward. I'll then throw that onto Liz. What, what was your take of some of the theoretical contributions that were made? Is it is it all doom and gloom, or do you think there's more more that we, we, we could say about that that's positive? So I think people. So the, there's a lot of sense that the theory doesn't necessarily work when you try and put it into practice. I think, and and so there's sort of questions about you know why that happens. Was it a bad theory, or is it just really difficult to do this in practice? Um, and that's when you sort of get into some of the um, the issues around. Um, you know the, the old classic that there isn't really political will, or you know, basically haven't managed to get the 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 political take on how to do this right. So we haven't managed to create the right incentives for the right people to um, to really play ball. And also, I think just that you know that issue of the the adaptation and and people becoming more skillful. So Delia Forever Rubio talks quite a lot about how we recognise now that organised crime is you know very closely related to corruption. Alina Mangiopipidi talks about how um, there's this very clever sort of political fight back often. So once we've had some successes, then you kind of get the fight back. Um, and again, people increasingly using corruption across borders and transnationally. So I think um, my take would be that theory is a is evolving and we have to just keep experimenting. We can't expect that the same thing is going to work in every context. I think, you know, again, Delia talks quite a lot about how we now have such a much more sophisticated idea of this. So we, we've we divided corruption into lots more different types of corruption. Um, we look at it in terms of different sectors and different contexts. So I think that's not necessarily 
necessarily saying theory is not working. It's just saying that we need to be very careful about how we apply theory and make sure that we always contextualize it and think um, more deeply about how it's working and how it might work in a given political context. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. I mean, if, there, if anyone is thinking there is one theory, then they're thinking wrong because there clearly isn't and there never is in anything uh, that we do as social scientists. So I think we've moved well beyond that. And that, for me, is definitely progress, looking at different theories, what they can explain, what they can't explain, what they do well, what they do not so well. Sam, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, th- I think I can uh, sometimes get a bit get, get a bit grumpy about the over being overly critical of theory but i think that's as much a problem of me or as other academics as as it is anyone else's problem and my i suppose my thing is people can sometimes expect too much of theory right theory is called theory for a reason it is a theory it is not a proof mm-hmm. it is not <clears throat> it's not something to be driven forward a theory is something that you test and that can sometimes help you to explain a situation and I think that probably in terms of the way in which corruption has worked too often and perhaps it driven by you know academic incentives if you will to have a theory which is held up and very esteemed and something that you can really build a career on and theory has been been held up as well this is the thing that definitely works perhaps if we're talking about the 90s and corruption let's let's talk about incentives and incentive structures um and this is something which will definitely work in a situation put it in um increase increase wages increase sanctions and you can expect corruption to to disappear now actually that's not how theory works a theory is 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 something that you test and in fact in many situations it won't hold up. And where I think we've got quite good in both the academic and policy world in corruption and what came out in many of the in many of the contributions is this notion that actually we've 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 reached a period of acceptance that the theories might not work in every situation but perhaps that doesn't mean that the theory is bad perhaps that just means we need to think about the complex nature of corruption as Liz was saying and think about context so think about sectors which is what what Paul Hayward does a lot of, and I think that his reflection on his his distaste for awareness raising was quite interesting um, in the podcast as well. But actually, I think that we have moved to this place now where academics are much more malleable in terms of what their theory is and in terms of their theoretical background and talking about what works, and indeed policymakers and practitioners are increasingly driven by context as well. And actually, I think, you know, to trumpet the work that we do in the in the centre, um, this is something that we really focus on to try and actually actively drive forward where academics are, are, are at in their thinking and actually where the rubber hits the road with practitioners and what's happening on the ground. And that kind of conversation can only drive it forward because we can get a bit stuck in our theories. I'll accept that. We can think this theory is great and and not actually think about what's going on in practice. But, we, you know, our theorising is really genuinely quite useful. So when we have these conversations and when we drive forward sort of together, I think that's where, where it's really useful. And we can be pulled out of our sort of theoretical bubbles a little bit, but we can also see what works in what context and when. No, I mean, just to say that, you know, a couple of people also talked about the importance of empirical research. Um, so Matthew Stevenson talks about, you know, how 
that recognition of the importance of that really comes, um, you know, with the first corruption indicators. Um, so I thought that was quite an interesting take, you know, in contrast to Paul Hayward talking about how, you know, he realizes that sometimes these indicators are now too simple and they're letting us down. But actually, you know, Matthew's point that they they kicked off in a way a wave of empirical research. So yeah, that that just also sort of feeds back. That's your feedback loop on the theory, yeah, and whether the theory is working or not. Yeah, Robert. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to move us away from theory for a moment. Well, can I dive in? I was going to ask you about something that came about non-state actors having all the energy. Okay. And I think that point was really interesting. That definitely came out in a couple of the contributions, actually. And I was going to ask you about that simply because you have a, a, you know, a well-documented background in in Transparency International. What role do you see non-state actors playing here? Obviously a significant one, but how's that going to play out? Are their roles going to change? If you can tap your answer to that question onto the comment you were going to make before, then it all will be good. Yes, I will do. And um, I mean, it's a really great point, I think. But let's um, first of all think, what do we mean by non-state act- state actors? So state actors are, you know, the government, politicians, people associated with the state, possibly the public sector. The When we're talking about non-state actors in the context of the contributions we had, people were talking effectively about the private sector and civil society. So the private sector, Liz has mentioned, I'll just talk a bit about civil society. And I think there is a sense of both organized civil society and also uh, sort of um, less organized or maybe spontaneous civil society um, have a big role to play in. And that links in a sense with the transparency revolution. As we have become more aware of what is going on in the world, um, particularly through social media, then that angers people, it inspires them, it motivates them. So you can see both good and bad practice spreading around the world much more quickly. And uh, that brings into play this question of, you know, what is the role of civil society and citizens? Uh, And in some contexts, we've seen that civil society has played an enormous role in both highlighting abuses and sometimes, you know, using mechanisms that exist, like the court processes, for example, to hold people to account, sometimes uh, creating their own mechanisms um, to hold people to account. And in places, we've seen that be very successful. So, you know, I think if we had sat down 30 years ago and thought, um, how are we going to tackle corruption Almost inevitably, it would have been taking those kind of um, rational choice enforcement type approaches, because that's what the world did in those days to, you know, to, to many issues. I think now, um, you know, 30 years on in a whole raft of areas across the world, we've seen the limits of government, the limits of regulation, and the limits of law and the limits of law enforcement. And so that brings us to, you know, what what else can be done? And there you do see the role of citizens and civil society. Um, operating in ways that aren't necessarily requiring uh, a legal or a regulatory solution to a problem, but are, um, for example, using social media to highlight abuses, uh, help help us to make progress in certain ways. That that reminds me again. This is links to the point I was about to make. It reminds me of what Lena Hoffman made about you know the the limits of enforcement and how she has changed her view and you know really come to value social norms approaches. So I think what one is seeing there is not that people would have discounted um, or totally written off social norms approaches 20 years ago. But maybe there's a greater sophistication in understanding of how different approaches work, and perhaps people reprioritizing them in their list of, you know, what what should be, um, uh, what what should be done. 
Um, I think actually, sorry, just a reflection on the social norms point is that, you know, I think actually 30 years ago, we were a bit reluctant to talk about social norms in a way, because it, it sounded like we were just saying, oh, it's a cultural issue and, you know, something that you can't fix and you can't get over. So I think there's there's been quite an interesting evolution there of seeing social norms as something that you kind of you need to understand and you need to work out how to play in and 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 see how. You, know, you can use social norms to to motivate people who are in situations where corruption is quite functional. So that's the sort of the way that debate has moved on from from the sort of first take on that, which was sounded a little bit just like, oh, you know, you you'll never fix corruption in that culture kind of thing. So yeah, again, it's all about, I guess, just getting a bit more sophisticated. Yeah, and. He- the point I was going to draw out from um, Lena Hoffman is more generally about so many of our contributors who do say that they have changed their minds on significant things over the last you know, 10 years. And I think for me, that's a really important lesson, actually, because um, as somebody from a campaigning background, you, you have to campaign with a fair degree of certainty. Um, and if I think of things like, uh, you know, civil society's beneficial ownership trans- uh, transparency campaign, we, we never um, allowed much room for doubt that BOT was the right thing to do. But it's, you know, really instructive to see how, um, you know, figures of the stature of Paul Hayward and Michael Johnston and Susan Rose Ackerman and Matthew Stevenson say they have changed their minds. And, you know, I think it's really important for um, just back to that civil society point for civil society to understand that, you know, as our understanding of these issues changes, and as the world changes around it, then we must change as well. And however, you know, um, passionate you are as a campaigner, and however strongly you're trying to put forward a point of view, it may be that that needs to be nuanced and perhaps even altered over time, um, and in different, uh, different contexts. And how does that fit in? I mean, I, I think it does fit in, but we're interested to get to your take on it, Robert, with some of these notions of legal corruption that that popped up in the contributions by by Mick Johnston and, and Susan Rose Ackerman and others have written about, of course, where an awful lot of corruption is, is not illegal. An awful lot of corruption is actually, you know, within within the rules, sometimes because people have written the rules themselves, sometimes because people are just clever and, and have worked out how to get what they want, um, uh, you know, without breaking the law. Um Social norms and integrity, two words strongly linked to corruption analysis, would seem to me to be useful ideas in trying to do something about that that thorny problem, right, of, of corruption that is perfectly legal. Yeah. And, you know, actually two of the contributors who talked about their views having changed, Michael Johnson and Susan Rose Ackerman, specifically talked about this question of um, legal corruption, institutional corruption as um, uh, something that was much more prominent in their thinking. Linking that back to campaigners, I actually think this is an area in which campaigners have become much more sophisticated in recent years. But if you look 30 years ago, you know, it would, would have been very easy for campaigners. And to some extent, they they slipped into this and the corruption perceptions index reflects it to be talking about high levels of bribery in the public sector as you know what corruption is and where it happens Um, and therefore you direct your campaigning attention to the global south i think there's a real understanding now amongst campaigners that actually when you look at uh what's happened in u.s politics when you look at what's happened in uk politics um, and many other sort of democracies that have been in a state of uh semi or sometimes more or less complete state capture um, that corruption happens in different ways in democracies, in mature democracies, 
uh, and emerging democracies, and that the transnational flows of um, illicit finance, the corrupt capital flows, the proceeds of corruption flow from countries where, yes, indeed, there might be high levels of um, public sector bribery, uh, but to the financial systems of places like um, uh, London, um, uh, Dubai, centres in the US, the offshore centres and so on, who all play their role in that sort of global web of corruption. So, um, you know, I think civil society has become much more sophisticated in its understanding of institutional corruption and legal corruption and how incredibly important it is to uh, address that. I, I think the solutions aren't necessarily there at the moment. You know, what, what's our response to corruption in the US or UK political system? Uh, I think so far the response has been to understand it's a problem um, and to get as many as people as possible to acknowledge that. But um, the solutions to it, to some extent, um, are looking at solutions about, you know, integrity and social norms that were tried in the past, but, um, you know, are pretty difficult to put in place when you have people without integrity and who delight in busting the social norms um, when those people get into power. Yeah, I think as well, people like us, uh, and I mean academics, uh, are actually really quite impatient individuals. It may take quite a long time to produce our research, but we, we do think that ultimately we should be contributing to making the world a better place. But as you say, Robert, I think it takes a long time um, to, to, to actually see these ideas percolate into, in, into a changed world. Um, Sam, did you want to come in on that? Firstly, you got a fantastic insight about five minutes ago into many of our meetings that we have in the Corruption Centre, where Robert chimed in and said, can I just pull you away from theory for a minute here? Um, <laughs> which is entirely fair. That's what had occurred to me, Sam, actually, as well. Yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah. But uh, I, I just, yeah, what, what's to respond to what Robert said there? Because I think, you know, when we're talking about legal legal corruption and the sort of institutional corruption that Michael Johnston and Susan Rose Ackerman were talking about. This is certainly the sort of work that I tend to be thinking about or, or the, the field that I tend to be thinking about, particularly around political financing. And another thing that actually I can sometimes be quite grumpy about is another thing that Robert said, which is, I suppose, the transparency revolution, right? But actually, I'm going to argue with myself for a minute here, which is, again, something that's quite common, which is that actually that's a real benefit of, I think, what we have seen in the past 30, 30 years of corruption analysis. And if we think back 30 years ago, actually, we didn't know all that much about many of the linkages and trends that we know about now, as it relates to donations and spending in many of, you know, many liberal democracies. UK, for example, we didn't, we didn't really know anything about who donated what and when until the year 2000. But many of this, much of this regulation came in in the 90s. And it has sort of thrown light onto onto the not just the globalized nature of corruption but actually the way in which influence is is uh, the way in which to use a michael johnson's phrase the influence market exists in many of these democracies and i think it's sort of helped us to move from this position of that there are some countries to to quote our former prime minister david cameron um, when he was caught on a mic as being fantastically corrupt and there are other countries that are perfectly clean thank you very much actually i think we've moved from there um because of the work of many of the people on the podcast to to think of actually corruption every country and actually you know network as having their corruption challenge and a specific corruption challenge that they need to face or a collection of corruption challenges and that perhaps ranking these things is 
maybe useful, maybe not. But what we need to think about are the challenges that are, that exist in both systems at the country level, but also systems at the sector level, and slightly more broadly than that, when we consider the the globalized nature of corruption. Sam, Robert, Liz, um, we we covered you know, about 15 different editions of this podcast worth of material. Um, and I'm sure we could carry on, um, you know, listening to Sam argue with himself and and then, you know, get, getting grumpy with himself. And it would be highly entertaining, but we're not going to be able to do so because we're running out of time. I'm going to give you each of you the chance to have a last word on this. And it can be about anything you like, anything you heard in episode 100, or perhaps about stuff that we're going to talk about in the future. Robert, do you want to kick off? Thank you. So, you know, my overall reflection is that after 30 years, we've come to the end of phase one. We're beginning to understand the nature of the problem. We don't know what phase two looks like yet. And I think that's a challenge for both practitioners and the research community is working out, you know, what phase two looks like, whether that's the next 20 or 30 years. How can we make progress building on phase one? It seems like a perfectly rational way to, to, to end things, Robert, actually. And I, I I thought that a little bit when I went to the Global Anti-Corruption Conference in Washington, D.C. in December last year, for what it's worth. I thought there was a lot of energy in the room. So there was a lot of very passionate people who had potentially interesting solutions. But I think that, that it felt like there needed to be a step on from that. And that would link theory a bit more rigorously. That would link the NGO world with the practitioner world. And it feels like the time is right for, for a phase two. And, and I guess it's up to us to try and help think uh, others to, to, to shape what that might look like in practice. Liz, final thoughts from you? I'd maybe just pick up on the debate around incrementalism versus Big Bang that also comes up. So Matthew Stevenson talks about how he sort of moved in towards towards incrementalism as a useful way of tackling corruption and, and less thinking about needing a Big Bang. And, and it also, I thought, related a little bit to something that Alina Munjupipidi said, and she talked about how a lot of corrupt actors see corruption and have realized what a reliable instrument it is. I think that's what she said. And I think, you know, in that context of incrementalism, our job is about making corruption a less reliable instrument. It's about trying to um, you know, make sure that that people cannot rely on being able to do corrupt acts and get away with it. So all of our work is, I think it is quite incremental. It is small steps and there will be change and adaptation but it's about um, making sure that they can't rely on using that instrument i like that a lot making the reliable unreliable there's a slogan to be used by someone somewhere there um sam final word to you yeah i would just say building off that that it is very likely if this is the end of phase one that phase two will look different and we're all going to change our mind on a lot of things in if we're asked about this question in 10 years time and indeed the way in which corrupt actors engage with the systems that they want to corrupt will change so i think it's about recognizing that that is the reality such that we need to be malleable in our approaches and our understandings and actually the assumptions that we have as much as the the the, the corrupt techniques if we will um, will be as malleable um, so we need to meet the challenge head on and continue to be flexible and reflect on the issues um, that perhaps we might think now are pretty set in stone but in about five years time might be completely different makes a lot of sense to me and of course on this podcast we'll be looking to touch on some of these issues that might potentially be absolutely central to this new phase two uh, that is going to come along um the next edition of kickback we'll look at professional enablers principally here in the uk but we'll have resonance um all around the world i'm sure we're also going to look in podcast editions after that at anti-corruption parties there are a few of them about we're going to look at what makes them successful and what 
makes them fail. We're going to be looking at political finance and transparency uh, in a range of ways, as well as corruption in and around the European Union. Uh, Do stay tuned for um, all of those. Um, We're very keen to hear your thoughts on what we're doing. Do drop any of us a line by all of the usual routes uh, and we'll do our very best to act on whatever we hear. Um, Liz, Robert, Sam, thanks very much for your time. Enjoy wherever you are in the world and we will all no doubt reconvene again very soon. Cheers, folks.